Dave here. Just wanted to say a couple things before diving into this special tribute episode for the 2017 Busker Hall of Fame inductees Nick Nicholas and Dick Finkel. As it happens, both of these individuals were a part of the very first wave of recordings done by the Busker Hall of Fame back when Robert Butterfly Man Nelson was conducting all the interviews. Back then, we'd do the recordings via Skype and put out episodes one at a time, learning about audio recording, editing, and production via trial and error, much like most of us learn how to do a street show. If you don't know how to do something, fake it till you make it. If something fails, learn from your mistakes, and if something works, keep it. Revisiting these early recordings was a real eye-opener. The audio quality is dodgy at best, but there's a raw enthusiasm that was captured that makes me smile to this day. Sadly, two of the people in the audio you're about to hear are no longer with us. Robert passed away on August 27, 2012, and we said goodbye to Dick Finkel on May 17, 2016. Two giants from our world who, in their own way, forever left an imprint on the community and the art form. So, as you listen to this episode, raise a glass or tip your hat to the 2017 inductees and the one and only Butterfly Man who was the inspiration behind this podcast in the first place. All right. Let's get to it. If they ever ask me about Nick Nicholas, I always tell them this story. I say, well, Nick was down in Key West at one of uh, Will Soto's Busker Fest. I don't know if it was the first, second, or third one. Didn't really matter. None of us got paid anyway. You were uh, with a photographer, and uh, she drove you to get some lunch. You had your straight jacket in her car. She left her camera in the car. You were eating and your stuff had been stolen out of her... Just before that, a week before that, I'd had a motorbike crash, and I messed myself up. I remember seeing you. You had a gas on your forehead, and you told me it was from throwing a machete behind your back. You're still doing some juggling. And I had you had gas under my chin. I had, my elbow was screwed up. I had a motorbike crash, and I couldn't work, so I made a new show up. And so what got stolen was my old show, which was my straight jacket, and my new show, which was just, just crap that I was doing. But and, your uh, face yeah, was I burned was... as well, because you had blown fire and it came back in your face, so you had all these big... That was the third thing that happened. I set fire to my head. Yeah. <laughs> I blew my whole, my whole face. So you got gashes, you got burns all over your face, you had a motorcycle accident, and... All of your show was stolen. And I, I just remember the moment looking at you. I'm, I'm going, man, if I had a pimple on my forehead, I wouldn't go out to do a show. And here's this guy. He's looking to get a few bucks together to go down to a magic store and buy a deck of cards and a few little gimmicks. And he's going to go busking this afternoon. I said, that's a hell of a trooper. And you gained well, I wouldn't my... have gone busking if you'd have lent me 50 bucks. Well, I wasn't going to do that. I'm not stupid. Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm David Aiken, the checkerboard guy, your host for this growing collection of interviews. Anyone who's ever worked with Nick Nicholas and spent the time to get to know him knows that he can be brash, he can be brutally honest, and he can be well and truly over the top. If you know Nick that well, you also know that, at his core, he cares deeply about the art of street performing and helping those who are brave enough to gather a crowd and pass their hat. This desire to give back to the next generation no doubt comes from the gratitude that he himself has to all those performers who helped him out when he first got started. Mentors who no doubt shaped the performer he would eventually become. The community in Covent Garden was also likely responsible for Nick's love of a good practical joke and a good laugh off stage. You'll hear the sense of play in the conversation that he had with Robert Nelson that was originally released as Episode 4 on November 22, 2011. Listen, laugh, and celebrate the first of our 2017 Busker Hall of Fame inductees, Nick Nicholas. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Nick Nicholas. Oh, that's him. That's definitely him. Just the light here. hey. How's that? There it is. Look, what sort of head is he? Tell him. <laughs> Chip off the old block. <laughs> so, Nikki, what I'm trying to do is figure out when you started, where you started, 
And what made you start? I started doing magic tricks when I was a kid. And then through a friend of mine whose dad was a sculptor who worked at Covent Garden, we went to Covent Garden and I saw my first busker. Who was that? It was Ulick George Daniel Allen, a.k.a. Shakespeare. Really? And uh, he did the rendition of A Midsummer's Night's Dream. And the first time I went on the West Piazza, I was about, it was when I was about 14, and he was pleading for someone to be the lion. And the crowd no one would be the lion in his pantomime, so I went, yeah, I'll be the lion. And I went out in his show, and I was the lion, and I did what I was told, in this little pantomime thing. And then afterwards, he told me and the other guy to come backstage under the pillars, and all the one P's and two P's, he spit, and he gave me and the other guy the one P's and two P's. Right, as a volunteer. So that was the first money I ever earned. But then I was already doing magic, and then I was a bit of books and I watched some other acts. And my first street show myself was in the East Piazza of Covent Garden. I went out with a head chopper, some linking rings, and a crappy little trick with some handkerchiefs, and I made 10p. What year was that, Nick? About 82. Really? So it's yeah. pretty early. Yeah, that's where I, you know, I learned. I grew up with all these crazy acts, you know, that did uh, these... It wasn't so much skill-based acts. It was just these really absurd sort of stuff. And there was some skill-based acts, and it was great to, for me to watch. And I learned that it doesn't matter what you do out there. It's how you do it. You know, get the crowd, stop them, make them laugh, and get some cash. So just, what happened after that, after Kevin Garden? Where'd you go? What'd you do? You ended up in New Zealand. Oh, that was years later. But yeah. I was in Covent Garden. My first ever trip that I ever did was I got a bus and went to Dublin and went busking in Dublin. And then my next trip, when I was 18, my first aeroplane, I went to Houston. Then I went to New Orleans and San Francisco. That's where I met you. Did we meet then, there? I think we met in Hawaii, but I saw you at Pier 39. You were there. The American Dream juggling team were there. Wheeler and his partner were there. Dana Smith, I stayed at Dana's place, and that was, I was 18, so that was 85, and then I, um, so I was living in ministry at the European Guest House, and then I saved up some money, and I just went to Hawaii, and that's where I met you, the Hawaiian Vaudeville Festival, that would have been 85 or 86. The, I think it was 85, it was the first one, right? It could yeah, have been 86. And that's when you, yeah, that's when we had that little bit of fun on the stage, yeah. So I think I kind of yelled at you. You were doing a magic trick on stage, and I I might have no, said something to you. it wasn't that, Robert, but it wasn't that. Uh, you were on stage giving it large because you were the butterfly man. No. It was a stage, and you said, come on, who wants to try me on? I'm the butterfly oh, man. And I just, okay. and I thought, who the hell's this bloke? I said, come on, I'll get up there. Uh-oh. That's what it was. And then we got up on stage and we started um, giving each other one-liners. and God, whatever. you were good. You know, in front of all my friends and I was supposed to have some sort of reputation of being good at it. And I just remember you just ripped me a new asshole in front of everybody. And I liked it. I actually liked it because no one had ever done it to me before. And to be taken apart by an 18-year-old kid who I had no idea who you were. I had a lot of admiration for you, that's for sure. But that's where it ended. <laughs> <laughs> that's where our friendship started and ended, right? It started and ended. <laughs> well, then, uh, let's see. I, gosh, we got such a history, I, I just can't even... I surfers together. When you first came to surfers... Oh, you were the guy that set the woman on fire. Yeah, well, that's when I, yeah, that's something I, you know, I talk about now and then, but uh, more now than then. And, uh, yeah, that was in Surface Paradise, my second fire accident, when she went up and I went up and I was three days in hospital on that one. And, uh, yeah, and that, actually, if you go, if anyone goes to Surface Paradise, right in the mall, in Cabell Mall, there's a circle after Brendan Foley who used to, that was a good gig, wasn't it? It was a great gig. We used to get paid 500 a week, we got a house on the beach and we could go busking. It was a cracker gig by Brendan Foley. Yeah, it um, was wonderful. And he got fired from the council for some reason. Yeah. If anyone's in Cavalmore in Australia, there's a mosaic right where we used to perform. And Brendan showed it to me a couple of years ago. 
and there's like um, a set of three juggling clubs. There's a snake coming out of a basket for Andrew. Oh my there's god! There's different people, and one one square in the mosaic is just fire. And he went, "That's for you, Nick," and that's about where it happened. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's how much humor Brendan's got. <laughs> The thing I most remember about surfers, uh, not the stage stuff, was was the fact that you and Pep were inseparable and insufferable. Oh, Pepe, my, remember in the restaurant? Uh, that'd be the Aussie Fish Calf. Yeah, where we did shows that we, we everyone had to do a spot every week, and we got paid money and got a free dinner, and we saved up the dinners so we could have a big dinner. On the last day, and I'll let you tell that story because it was. Well, I was. Uh, I wasn't married at the time, but I was traveling with my current wife of 22 years, Kumi, and uh, she was having her. I believe it was her 23rd birthday, and we're all sitting at the table. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in my head, I had David Gelman, Dave Sheraton, you, me, and Pep. We all decided to go out on the beach and uh, do a little puff. And while we were puffing, I don't know whose idea it was, probably yours or Pep's. It wasn't mine. Everybody said, okay, everybody switch clothes and we're going to go back in. It's uh, switch clothes, switch characters, switch seats. So you had to completely right, the other person. Right. And it was all fun and games. You know, I was Dave Sheridan. I thought I did a pretty decent job with him and. If I remember rightly, I was Dave Gillen, so I just sat there and went real quiet. Yeah, yeah, you didn't have to do too much to do a good job with him. All I remember is Pep and him doing me. Yeah, he was doing me, but he was doing me better than I do me. And it just was, uh, for some reason, he, the, the one thing that really bothered me was the way he fixated on his hat. He kept pulling my little stupid hat that I wore, and he pull out the peaks and pull it to the side and pull on the peaks and pull it to the side. And then he turned to Kumi and he go, it's all right, Kumi. It's all right. Kumi's cracking up. And, uh, yeah, and I'm just like, ah, I don't do that. I mean, uh, do I do that? W- what is that? But you couldn't say that because you were Dave Sheridan. No, I couldn't, but I just I just, I just couldn't. I couldn't. <laughs> well, I didn't exact. I think I actually did do him like that, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he did it better than he could do himself. Oh, oh! I love that man. I love that man. I still love that man today. Uh, he just contacted me. He wants to be my friend on Facebook. But going back to that thing in Surfers, what I remember in that thing in uh, the restaurant was then Pepe had played you perfectly. When Akumi, oh, it's your birthday. Um, I've been got the waiter over. And he, he opened, because he had your jacket on, right? Everyone had each other's clothes yeah. on. Yeah. And he took out your wallet, and he bought, like, a $100 bottle of champagne, <laughs> right? And sat there with Kumi and drank it, him and Kumi, <laughs> with your money, because he was paying you. Remember, that, that, was, that was the classic. That was the brilliance of Pepe. Uh, he was the best. But you guys were relentless. You just... You know, one or the other, but I couldn't take you both on. You just would work off each other, and you'd just take me out so easily. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, Robert, on another thing here. Did you get into busking for the freedom or the money? I personally got into it for the freedom of not being told what to do. I could do what I want when I want, and for the contrived admiration, which I didn't get from my parents. And then the money just came, and I learned I could make money anywhere. Because I say to people... Now, I say, look, if you want to be a busker, you can never fail. Because if you make nothing, you've learned what not to do. If you get paid 10 cents, you've been paid to learn what not to do. If mm. you make 50 bucks, that's quite good. You know, so you can never fail. But uh, I didn't do it for, I said, the money. But I got a buzz, as in I suddenly was doing shows mm-hmm. and have doing something I enjoy, getting my contrived admiration, making people happy. And look, getting cash in my hands, I'm going, my God, I can do this anywhere in the world. This is incredible. That's the whole key, isn't it? I mean, uh, sooner or later, it just sort of, yeah, it just sort of hits you. I can go anywhere and I can do this, uh, the amount of freedom. I think Mickey O'Connor said it best when he said, uh, you you get to live like a millionaire without the responsibilities. It's the old adage, traveling can broaden the mind, that old thing. But as an entertainer, I think if you travel, which you can do as a busker, 
you learned, uh, I know I did, and I still do, I learned so much by performing in different languages, different cultures, right. different situations, and then you, when you perform on a stage or whatever, you, all that information you've learned over all the years, it means you can, at Zabowski, you've dealt with so many different situations, it's not much that can take you out of the game. Well, isn't it strange, though, how you can almost sense a nation uh, or the people who live in the nation, what their sensibility is like when you're performing. It's almost an immediate education into what they are like as a race. I'll tell you a funny story. All right. When I first played in Spain, I was doing a festival, so I was flown to Spain, right? And um, it was only a few years ago, but... uh, and I'm doing, as you know, I do the cups and balls and tennis balls. But I, my luggage didn't arrive. And I've got to do some shows the next day. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I went and bought some tennis balls and stuff. And I went and bits and pieces, made a table. I went out and did a show, died of my ass because I couldn't speak Spanish. And uh, I was like, oh, my God. And I went back to the hotel, was drinking red wine. And I'm a bit like, oh, my God, you know, I'm sort of this, you know, headliner-type guy, this magic, street magic festival. And oh, that's it. Then I, but when I did the show and I was dying, I loaded all the tennis balls, and the tennis balls were, like, maybe a millimetre bigger than a normal tennis ball. So when I lifted the cup up with another tennis ball to dump in the cup to show a tennis ball, the original tennis ball wouldn't come out. And I even had to get scissors and pull these tennis balls out of the cups, right? They wouldn't come out of the cups. So I loaded them in, they were squished in the cups. And I died and everything on the way, you know, it was an awful show. And I go back to the hotel room and I'm drinking red wine and I'm like, I'm not the sort of guy who gets depressed, but I was, you know, a bit depressed. And, and I'm going, there I was, it was so funny. And I'm thinking, how am I going to work here? What am I going to do tomorrow? I can't speak the language. How am I going to win here? And I was in a hotel, drunk red wine. And I've got the uh, the sink in the bathroom there. I was shaving tennis balls. <laughs> I was shaving my tennis balls to try and get them to fit in the cup, right? And there I am, drunk, shaving tennis balls, thinking, how am I going to operate tomorrow? And I had this, this like, flash, Pepe popped in my head, and I went, just be a clown. The magic's easy, be a clown. Right. And there's, there I was, drunk, shaving tennis balls, and the next day I went out there, and um, I'd actually got some new tennis balls. That didn't work. The shave and the tennis ball, I didn't work. But I bought some new tennis balls and they worked. But I just went out and I didn't talk in the show and I was a clown. And suddenly it was fantastic. So that's what I learned. I couldn't talk. But the, the picture of me shaving tennis balls drunk, it stick in my mind forever. When I had the realisation of being a clown. Because it was so funny what I was doing. You know? <laughs> 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 it was me, but, you ask me one more question, then we wrap it in. Uh, why tennis balls? Okay, tennis balls came about because I was in Norway, you know, I was in Oslo, and I was doing the cups and balls, whatever, there with oranges. And there was a tennis ball, um, I was in a pier there, and I was in Kino actually, and there was a tennis ball just in the gutter, and we were working at uh, Akkerbrugge, Oslo. And I said, this tennis ball, and I went, it's just a tennis ball, and I went, and I wasn't getting much reaction from the audience, the, the Norwegians. So I started doing tricks, and I said, look, you guys, you know, I'm getting no reaction, you know, said, well, you don't really care about the tricks. And it was just this tennis ball I'd been playing with, because it was in the gutter, you know, we'd been sitting on the step, and I bounced the tennis ball. I said, look, I do this, I get the same reaction, it's just stupid, isn't it? Oh, all right. That's why that, you kept that in. You kept that in. You always did that. Yeah, well, that's how it started. That's oh, how it started, from seeing a tennis ball in a gutter. Yeah. And then I met a magician called Finn John. I did a show at the Norwegian Magic Circle a week or so later, and I hatted that show. I was scared to do this show. And the guy went, just do what you normally do. So I did a show at the Norwegian Magic Circle. I passed the hat, and a famous magician, Finn John, was there. Uh, he gave me some money, and he said, I'm going to show you something. So I did the tennis ball thing in the gag. I did the gag in the tennis ball thing there. And um, he showed me this vanish, the tennis ball. And then that's how it started. And then from that, it morphed into what it is. 
But it was basically finding a tennis ball in the gutter, sitting there bored, and just went, you guys don't give a shit about anything. I just bounced the ball. <laughs> I know what you want to say. Tennis ball! Good talking to you, Bobby. Uh, good talking to you too, Nikki. Take care of your family. Love to you. Yeah, love to you, mate. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Talk Thanks. to you soon. Laters. What a great guy. What a cunt. From the beginning, I wanted to use this podcast and project as a way to pay tribute to the many people who have given so much to the advancement of street theater as an art form. I'm so grateful to those who patiently explained things to me and wanted to have a venue to acknowledge the lineage and tradition that has given me so much. I pitched Robert Nelson on the idea of calling this endeavor the Busker Hall of Fame, not really knowing that an audience would grow and that people would not only start treating this as a legitimate thing, but would also take great pride in being inducted into the Hall of Fame. This year saw more involvement from the busking community about who should be inducted than ever before, which sort of blew me away and was really cool. Shortly after the April 1st, 2017 announcement was made, Nick Nicholas sat down and wrote a great Facebook post acknowledging the fact that he'd been inducted into the Busker Hall of Fame and took a moment to thank the many people who helped him out along his journey. I enjoyed that post so much that I reached out to Nick and asked him to record his acceptance speech so that I could include it as part of this tribute episode. Yes, some of the information is repeated from the conversation he had with Robert, but there's a great deal of context that comes out that bears repeating. Congratulations to Nick Nicholas. You've certainly earned your place in the Busker Hall of Fame. Wow, it's an honour and privilege to have been inducted into the Busker's Hall of Fame by my peers, even more so to share the honour with the legend that is Mr. Dick Finkel. He got my vote. He was the man who started the first Buskers Festival way back when, the Edmonton International Street Performance Festival. I thank you all for your kind votes, your friendship and your aspirations. I was inspired to pursue my love of magic and performing by the always youthful Jack Delvin at the Tram Shed in Woolwich, South London. The first street performer I saw was Johnny Eagle at the Tower of London when I was 10-ish. I also remember the budgie man in Leicester Square. I witnessed the Cups and Balls performed for the first time by Cellini when I was around 12. After discovering Covent Garden when I was still a school kid in the early 80s, I was hooked. At weekends, while my school friends were stacking shelves, I was out busking, watching and learning from the greats. Leaving school at 16, I knew what I wanted to do. Street shows. I'd sit and watch shows all day on the piazza. I'm sure I annoyed other acts with questions and queries, so I must say you were all very helpful to the young Nick. As long as I'd go and get the tea. Early mornings for the draw, 6am saw acts camping out under the portico playing cards, practicing juggling, concocting practical jokes, writing material and sending me off to get more tea. Some of the acts I recall back then were John McKenna, aka Sid Rasputin, whose show I could still orate verbatim. He had his bow locks, his blue bucket of lukewarm freezing cold water. Duncan Trillo, an avid blackjack player and an amazing magician, had a 10-15 minute show to music, card manipulations, linking rings and zombie ball. Krista Piss, a.k.a. Chris Lynham, shoved a firework up his arse and lit it. Magician Dave Brown used toilet seats for props. Terry Sinclair, who can be seen holding huge edges on the pitch playing his keyboard. Mike Mulcairin performed his whole show in pyjamas with a suitcase containing just a balloon. Tim Bat juggled a fry pan, an egg and a flaming baguette. Eggs are nifty, eggs are neat, eggs are lots of fun to eat. And I prefer mine fried, is what he said. Petra Massey and Charlotte Palmer were the baguettes with shopping trolleys and a human fountain. Charlie II, an Iranian-born acrobat, defied physics. Gazzo Show, before he was known actually as Gazzo, one of the best car men in the business and a very funny geezer. He showed me how to work the cups. Les Bubbs smashed the piazza with physical comedy and elastic bands. Tony Green taught me how to juggle three balls in one hand. Alex Dandridge was the other kid on the block. He had a unicycle and torches. This is when a six-footer was considered big. The amazing Mendezes, Dave and Chris, are one of the greatest juggling duos to date. The acts then were bizarre. There was Paddy Bramwells and John Chappell, a.k.a. the Cool Shades, with their black box and a cabbage on a stick. Randolph the Remarkable squashed his fat stomach into a plastic bucket of water. J. Arthur, musician who never played a cover, he introduced me to my first squat in Chelsea, where I lived in a cupboard. 
My second was in Hackney with Ulick Shakespeare Allen. He had the best dying scene performed on the cobbles. Andre Vincent used breadsticks. John Feely gathered a crowd using a box of matches. Eddie Izzard escaped from a woolly jumper. Andy Smart juggled pig's livers before he teamed up with Angelo to become the Vicious Boys. Dave Evans, the great Dave with a bad haircut and steel toe-cap boots, was the first five-club juggler I saw. And Steve Rawlins was balancing bottles on his chin while throwing perfect back crosses with fire torches. Fat Sandra would sit on a milk crate and sing Amazing Opera. Andrew Elliott, Anthru Mantru, is another huge influence, a bearded Indian-Australian magician who I met in London and have shared many glorious travel memories with. The great multi-skilled acrobatic linguist Captain Kino, Paul Keane, who I swear never did the same show twice, was a massive influence to me and to many, many others in the garden. He inspired me to always try different things out, never be afraid and to hone my skills. He also taught me how to drink Guinness and run the wall. The captain was also a major influence in the Australian scene, which took off after Brisbane Expo 88. Thanks to him and Brendan Foley, Surface Paradise was rocking with international acts for three years. Edinburgh Festival excursions were marvellous and incredible. I hitchhiked there with Gino Deville once and we pitched our tents in a motorway roundabout somewhere on route one evening. Woken up with trucks. Pepe Mime I first met when he was king of the mound. This was before the mile was open for busking. He was wearing clown makeup and working the bottom end by Princess Street. We ended up travelling various bars and street corners together worldwide. He's one of the funniest mind-following shows I've ever seen. To quote Pepe, Never try and chase the audience's breath. Slow down and let them breathe your breath. Aileen Wilkie is originally from Edinburgh. I met her when she was a punk in Piccadilly and she didn't want to fit into the real world either. She honed her skills and became one of the first girl unicyclists out there. She now lives in Hawaii, as does Kiwi Mr. Whimsical stilt walker extraordinaire Martin Ewan, a.k.a. Lurk, who I first encountered in New Zealand late 80s. The fact is, street performing attracts many folks that have no desire to conform to the real world. Thankfully, we have all found our way forward in life, learnt some skills, sharpened a creative sense of the absurd and got paid in the hat. I boarded my first aeroplane with carry-on luggage and 100 quid at 18 and a one-way tip to New Zealand via USA on the advice of David Sheridan. Stopping in New Orleans, Tim Eric put me in my first real straitjacket which I never escaped from. I've yet to see a better escape act anywhere in the world. In San Francisco I was looked after royally by Dana Smith and his partner Sunshine. Then got inspired and shared a broken van with Mime Vaughan Avery. Got taken to jail after working a pitch with Sean Lachlan. Was introduced to the Grateful Dead later. I met Butterfly Man, Ray Jason, Charlie Brown, American Dream Juggling Team and oh so many others. I was enlivened in Key West by Will Soto, Johnny Fox and Love 22, as well as the Cat Man. He had trained cats on a high wire with hoops of fire. During these early years there was no internet, mobile phones and most of all no one used a mic. The travels continued. There are so many more stories and people to mention. One should be David Aitken, the checkerboard man, who I first met in Surface Paradise. For without him, there'd be no Buskers Hall of Fame and I wouldn't be writing this. To all who inspired me to continue this journey, I thank you so very much. Street performing has not only taught me how to perform, but taught me how to believe in myself and accept whatever is thrown at me with a positive outlook. My belief and what I pass on to any newcomers is the fact that it's impossible to fail as a street performer, i.e. if you make nothing in the hat, you've learnt what not to do. If you make 10p, as I did on my first ever show, you've been paid to learn what not to do. You can always strive to get better as performers and humans. I'm writing this now while in a hotel in Vanuatu, awaiting to join a cruise ship tomorrow. When I was a boy growing up in South London, I didn't even know where Vanuatu was, let alone think I'd be paid to be here. Remember, stage time is everything. If you want to learn to perform, try the streets. You can do multiple shows every day in all conditions. Knowing you have a family of other clowns and troubadours to critique you, berate you, give you a bed for the night and share your tears and laughs with. To all the pavements and piazzas in the world and all who play their shows on them, I thank you.
The Edmonton International Street Performers Festival is the longest-running busking festival in North America, and we have Dick Finkel to thank for launching the event during the summer of 1985. But where did this idea come from? How did the planets align to allow the festival to begin in the first place? And what was the formula for success that has seen the event continue for over three decades? As Nick observed in the acceptance speech you just heard, street performing attracts folks who have no desire to conform to the real world. So it was critical that the guy who wanted to create an event that featured this tribe of creatives had just the right personality and just the right touch to become the impresario of this glorious band of misfits. For the first 15 years of the Edmonton International Street Performers Festival, Dick went out of his way to bring the best practitioners of the art to Churchill Square in Edmonton to perform their shows, create new work, and delight audiences. He then passed the torch onto Shelley Switzer, who continues to honor the tradition of treating artists with respect and giving them the venue to do the best work of their lives. Dick may be gone, but his legacy will be carried on by all those who played under his watchful eye and were influenced by the godfather of Canadian street performers' festivals. Mr. Finkel, thank you for all you gave us. You more than earned your place in the Busker Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, the icon of the Street Performer Festival organizers, Mr. Dick Finkel, I offer you Ricardo Finkelini, the world's tallest freestanding Jew. What an intro. <laughs> Dick, you and I go way back. We've been friends through all the years. You've never been a festival producer to me. You've been a friend to me more than anything else. But I gotta say, you know, you probably have that same relationship with thousands of other buskers. And you know thousands and thousands of buskers. Perhaps most of them, I don't even know. Tell me how this whole thing started. I mean, where did you get the idea to use street performers? I had first seen street performers on trips to San Francisco. Canary Wharf, Fisherman's Wharf, and even in Union Square. And I always enjoyed them. Then I was involved with folk festivals, folk music festivals. And there used to be what they called family stages, or kid stages. So I then was looking for a way out of living in a place called Winnipeg. I had just broken up a domestic scenario, and I wanted out. And a friend of mine came up with the idea of doing a busker's festival. And the original idea was to do a competition with a vote from the public the prize being a touring minivan. And as we discussed that idea, I began to realize that competition couldn't be a healthy thing. Uh, I didn't like the whole idea of buskers performing against each other. So I basically put together the first street performance festival here in Edmonton in 1985 with this other guy who I dreamed up the idea with. We had very little money, didn't know what the hell we were doing. So I knew a couple of people in Winnipeg that were doing bad street shows. I asked other people for names of jugglers and magicians, primarily people in the music industry. And when I spoke to these various people, I said, do you know anybody else that might be appropriate? And they filled in some of the blanks. So the first year was really not a rip-roaring success. Part of it was the location. Part of it was that nobody knew that we were going on. And part of it was that, although we had some good talent, including Philippe Petit, by the way, from New York, the wire walker, some excellent talent, most of the people were much less so. So in 86, the guy that I had been doing it with 
said he was going to greener pastures. I should do it myself. And I realized that if I didn't get world-class people, we weren't going to make it. So I remembered San Francisco. I made some phone calls. And I went down. Then they had Pier... Was it Pier 29? No, Pier 39. 39, right. So I went to Pier 39 in Canary. And I spoke with some people there. And I also found out, oh, there was New York Festival put on by the Village Voice. It ended up with a guy named Tony Vera, I think. Oh, God. The fireman. Getting, yeah, he got pissed off that he didn't win it and spit fire at people. <laughs> so they never had it again. But I spoke with some, oh, spoke with people in, in New York and they said, your best bet is to go to Federal Hall. So I had lived in Boston years before, and I contacted the South Seaport, and they said, well, we're having a, a festival. Not only our local people are invited, but we've invited a few special guests. So I went down to Federal Hall in 86, and there I met you, Dana Smith, Shakespeare, now Shakespeare, oh, yeah. well, the Woodhead Murph, the Boston Mafia. Right. And invited everybody up, actually, for 87. That's when we had the killer lineup. And moved the venue from where it had been to a better location. So we rocked. Jesus, that was the greatest thing ever. It was the yeah. best festival. You treated us all like your brother. And we got along famously, and you set the tone. You just simply set the tone for the next ten years of busking. My attitude was informed by two things. One, the Winnipeg Folk Music Festival which the model was, let's invite the best, we can't pay them shit, so let's treat them with respect, dignity, put them out up at a hotel, pick them up at the airport, feed them. So if we can't pay them good money, at least we can treat them like human beings, because most of them weren't. They were treated like talent. So that was number one, and that was my training. But more importantly... I was so guilted out by not having enough money to offer all you guys that I felt in awe of your talent. And I knew that when you were on the road, usually, again, you were treated like folk musicians. You know, nobody met you anywhere. Nobody gave a shit where you slept. Um, so we had a big party. And if you remember, the hospitality suite was a huge part of the social gathering. In those first few years, the hospitality suite was very small. And we just lived on top of each other when the festival shut down. And because we couldn't afford it, nor did we have space, I made a policy that nobody but performers could right. be in hospitality. Yes, I remember that. A lot of people were very pissed off about that, particularly some groupiettes <laughs> and some of the more frisky of the gentlemen, shall we say. <laughs> but that was the policy. So we tried to feed you as well as possible, put you up nicely, and treat you well. And those are the two reasons. Winnipeg so and guilt. <laughs> 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 well, it certainly worked. Whatever works, right? That... It did, and what shocked me, Robert, what? was that from that point onward, there seemed to be this vast proliferation of festivals. Yeah. And not one of them seemed to have, whatever it was that it took, to copy the model. 
Right. It was really fucking simple. There was no secret to it. But again, they'd let people arrive in the airport and tell them what dormitory to go to, not pick them up to go to the dormitory. Then you, there you are at a dormitory or wherever the hell they've got you. No communication with anybody. No socialization. After the shows when everybody wants to hang out, let their hair down. There frequently weren't central spaces for the social aspect. And I, again, was so guilted by not paying people a decent contract fee that I felt we had to feed everybody and treat real nice. When I listen to you, Dick, i got to say that it really seems to come from a point of respect. We had a good time. Oh, we had a I think the other thing that inadvertently happened, but it also cemented our reputation, and it also added immensely to the event of Edmonton. And that is that I think it was the third year. We had some really good talent up here. And I had scheduled everybody tightly. And I gave everybody their schedule. I had a meeting on, I think, Monday night. Ask everybody, you know, how's it going? Any suggestions? Feedback? And somebody said, we're not doing shows Saturday night. How come? And I said, well, you know, you, by Saturday, you're like your 11th day. The crowd should be huge. You're going to be exhausted. So I figured Saturday night we'd party. And somebody said, no, man, it's Saturday night. we got to perform. And I remember thinking, uh, uh, that means keeping my volunteers on when I hadn't told them I needed them, yada, yada. Mm. And I remember saying, okay, here's the deal. Let's do a group show. And by that time, there was already, because of the hospitality suite, and because nobody was up anybody's ass performer-wise, there was already a lot of kibitzing and growing and learning and teaching going on amongst the artists. And I said, so, everybody had performed the Saturday night show, but the deal is, you don't do anything you normally do during your show, and you do it with somebody you've never done it with before. And that became Late Night Madness. God, what a wonderful experience those were. And, and that was just off the top of my head, and because I had fucked up the scheduling. It wasn't anything brilliant, but I remember my budget was $50 because I had to go rent a baby spotlight to put on top of a trailer. And we put picnic tables on the side of what we called the stage. And that was backstage in full view. And that was our first variety show. It was fabulous. We had more people than we could handle. I'll bet, I'll bet we had a thousand people at that show. Wow. Which in those days was huge, man. Certainly for us, it was huge. And when we did that, I don't remember what we made, but it was a lot of money. And we just split it up amongst everybody. So the next year, I said, well, fuck, we got to get some kind of production value, but I can't put in staging and lighting and proper micing. I mean, at that point, nobody had mics. So anyway, we the second year we did it outside too. And then the third year we moved into the theater. And we called it Late Night Madness. And we ran three of them. We ran Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night to give everybody a shot at this special show. And it created enormous chaos. But it was the glue that held the festival together. Yes. Because everybody was, unless we had bad rain, everybody was making money. Everybody was having a good time, hanging with guys they knew. And here comes this challenge. Nobody wants to screw up. 
so people are breaking up into, you know, practicing music and lyrics, and it's really outrageously funny and innovative stuff was produced by this cast of, I mean, nobody had a better cast than the street festival. I mean, look at the talent. Every year, there was this enormous pool of talent. So, after everybody would finish at 10 o'clock every night, they'd come back to the hospitality suite and go up to somebody's room to practice for Saturday night or Friday, Friday night. And that, I believe, was the single most important ingredient to the success of our festival. I don't think it was me. I think it was that simple fucking idea. I absolutely 100% agree with you. And I think the one thing that really stands out in my mind as a performer at many of your festivals, I think I did 10 altogether uh, over wow. my 30 years. The things that stand out most in my mind are the people that I met and worked with on those late night madness shows. It just developed friendships that lasted a lifetime. So I think you're right in that regard. I want to talk some more about your festival itself, but I'd like to ask you a question. And you know I've been around for quite a while, and I have a few theories as to why this whole thing started. And here's my take on it. In Vancouver, in 1986, they had an expo. Yes. And a lot of us applied to go up there, and once there, to their credit, they made a decision to leave it up to the performers to perform when and where they wanted to be. Uh, As a result of that, everybody... You know, instead of being restricted to like a half hour show, some people did two hours. Yep. Uh, some of them, uh, did short shows. Some of them did, uh, circle shows. And they do them in all these different places. Some yep. things that you would never expect. And it was a marvelous success. Absolutely. And I don't know who made that decision to leave it up to the street performers, but you gotta say, that same attitude of respect for the performers that they could police themselves and give them that freedom, that became uh, pretty much, uh, that was the key to the success there. I went out there in August and September and got friendly with quite a number of the guys there because I knew the backstage people. And Jane Howard Baker who's the woman that hired everybody, was generous enough to open her file drawer and say, anything you want, take it in terms of contacts. So she was a fabulous information source for me just after the second year we had done Edmonton. And I think that after Edmonton, the first year, I think, or second year, after Edmonton, Halifax started. And although it had its warts, still does, I understand. Um, it still was huge crowds, people making a lot of money. And Canada suddenly said, hey, how can I get on this bandwagon? So there were other festivals that started around that time. And I think also there are other non-street performance festivals that started to hire street acts. And shortly after that, I think some of the people went into cruise ships stuff during the winter, and again, I think the word spread about, hey, some of these festivals are fun. Not only can you make money, but they're fun. Somebody to hang with. Right. I mean, usually if you go to a, a state fair, they hire you for two weeks, and you show up the first day, they tell you where to be when, and then you see them two weeks later when they give you a check. Yeah. Whereas the festivals went a step or two further. So I think all those things sort of conspired, if you will, came together and are responsible for the, the huge growth in the mid-late 80s. Oh, great, Finkelini. You will always be the master of us all. We'll talk again soon, Dick. Have a good one. <laughs>
Okay, man. Thank you. Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these interviews. This episode is proudly sponsored by Dolphin Creative, a company dedicated to supporting street theater and all of the incredible characters who make up this world. Wherever you perform, Dolphin Creative salutes you. For more information, please visit dolphincreative.org. And huge thanks to Stuart and his team for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. Or become a sustaining supporter of this project at patreon.com slash buskerstories. Your contributions really do allow us to grow this resource and generate more content, so thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping us keep busking history alive. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover and the late, great Hokum W. Jeeves. Links to all the songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Simply go to your favorite app, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. If you're accessing this content via iTunes, we'd love it if you could take a moment to leave us a review and give us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well then, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash buskerhalloffame. Follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. You know, this episode had me going back to the very beginnings of this project and my memories of working with Robert Nelson, the Butterfly Man. So to close today, I thought I'd wrap things up with the original opening that we used to use, as it seemed appropriate to take a moment to remember Robert, as well as our two 2017 inductees. On behalf of myself, story editor Magic Brian, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. It matters not the job you've got. The greatest icons of the street performing world. As long as you do it well. Never been so excited in my whole life. Things that are made by plants will aid. The test of time will tell. I knew I was going to get a little flack from each one of you. You cannot count or know the amount. I can do anything. Or the value of a man by the show displayed or the beauty made by the touch of the juggler's hand. Because no one really cares about me. I am the butterfly man and I thank you for your kind attention.